good morning, church. I want to say good to be with you, but I can't, so good to have you with us. And I miss you. I miss not being with you. Look forward to being together again, handshakes and hugs and just to be together. But I know God is going to see us through this period, and um, wherever you are, God knows exactly what's going on in your mind and your heart, and He's at work as we just sang. So a couple of quick family matters before I get started, church. First of all, the church family. Uh, at the end of the service, our lead elder, Charlie Howell, is going to come up with a special announcement, special family announcement. So don't go anywhere at the end of the service after communion. I mean, where would you go anyway? So, you know, options were limited. Uh, but, but our personal family, the Wells family, we had a, a new grandchild born a few days ago, uh, number six for Gail and me. This is um, our youngest son, John Paul, and his wife, Michelle, had their first child, a little boy. Uh, rumors were that uh, they were going to name him Churchill, which would have been great, but uh, they did not go with that. They went with Wallace Dutch Wells. So we're all excited about that little boy. I love the Apostle Paul. When I'm reading his letters in the New Testament, so often I think to myself, I love Paul's writings. I cannot get enough of Paul. I mean, here is a man who hated Jesus, who was a leading opponent of the gospel, who thought he was serving God by persecuting Christians. And then the risen Christ intercepts him on the way to Damascus and saves him. He's transformed from a man who hated Jesus to a man who loved Jesus with all of his heart. He goes from a man who is a leading opponent of the gospel to a man who is the leading proponent of the gospel. From the greatest antagonist of the gospel to the greatest ambassador of the gospel. Here is a man who was all about religion and rule keeping and ritual and who is transformed so that he becomes a champion of grace, the undeserved favor of God to sinners. Here is a man who was clearly brilliant, but full of rage and fury. And God transforms him into a man who is still brilliant, but now is a big-hearted lover of people. Here is a man who has been used by God more than any other person in Christian history to spread the gospel. A man who has written 12 books of the New Testament, including books that are so vital in our daily lives with Christ. I mean, that, consider the impact of this one man. And here's a man who, has, who, ha, who suffered incredibly with beatings, stonings, imprisonment, left for dead, and yet a man who was fearless, unafraid, and unintimidated who counted it a privilege to serve and suffer for Jesus Christ. What a man. One writer said of Paul, quote, I can't imagine the scene where the apostle Paul appeared before Nero, the Roman emperor, to give the answer to the charges against him. I can imagine the emperor in his royal robes seated upon a throne. His name was known throughout the empire, but nobody knew of Paul. Here was this obscure little Jew, bald-headed, big-nosed, bandy-legged, totally unimpressive in his physical appearance, and he was leader of an obscure, heretical little sect that was known only 
as troublemakers. Nobody had heard of Paul while everybody had heard of Nero. But the interesting thing is that now, 2,000 years later, we name our sons Paul and our dogs Nero. Actually, we don't even name our dogs Nero anymore. So this morning, we come to this most uh, significant life and the fascinating story of Paul's Damascus Road conversion in Acts 9. What does God want to say to you this morning and to me this morning through Paul's story, through his conversion? We will begin reading the first six verses in Acts 9, beginning at verse 1, Acts 9, 1 through 6. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Church, this is God's holy word. Each year when I take a group of people from our church to Israel, we take one day to travel from the Sea of Galilee farther north up to the northeast corner of Israel in the Golan Heights, which are the mountains between Israel and Syria. We stop at a park near the border of Syria, a park that commemorates a famous battle in the 1973 war. And from that park, we look east out over Syria, which is about a half mile ahead. And past that border, another half mile, is, an, is a road, which is the same ancient road going from Jerusalem to Damascus. And I am always moved when I locate that road, and I think to myself, that is the road where the apostle Paul was rescued by the risen Jesus Christ. And I'm just moved by that. And that rescue on that road reverberates down through history still today. We know him as Paul by his Roman name. His Jewish name was Saul. But after Acts 13, he is only called Paul, the Roman name. He, will, he was first introduced way back in Acts 7 when he participates in the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. After that stoning, we read of Paul in the next chapter, Acts 8, verse 3, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, Paul is like a ravaging beast 
breathing fire, persecuting the church. And the next time we see him after that is in our passage, Acts 9, where he will be ambushed by the grace of God. Then, after a few more chapters, beginning with Acts 13 on to the rest of the book, Paul becomes the central figure, the leader of the early Christians in the early church. In Acts 1 through 12, Peter is the key leader. In Acts 13 through 28, Paul is the key leader. Now, back in verse 1, we read, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Paul had fire in his belly, hatred in his eyes, venom in his heart. Why such intense hatred for Christians? Because he considered Jesus and his followers heretical, a threat to the Jewish faith and to the Jewish people. Paul gets authorized by the high priest to go to travel to Damascus, 150 miles, about a six-day trip, to go to Damascus to capture Christians and bring them back. So verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. So this is after five or six days. He approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. We know from other accounts it's brighter than the midday sun, the midday Middle Eastern sun. It's intense, bright light. Verse 4, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, can you imagine how terrifying this must have been for Paul? I mean, this blinding light all around him and this powerful voice from heaven. I mean, he hadn't read Acts 9. He doesn't know what's going to happen. And he hears this powerful voice speaking to him, why are you persecuting me? Paul's immediate response is in verse 5, who are you, Lord? Now, because of the blinding light and the powerful voice, he knows that's not a mere man speaking to him. So he asks, who are you, Lord? And the reply comes back in verse 5, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The voice of Jesus was the last voice in the world that Paul expected to hear, the last voice in the world that he wanted to hear. His whole life was based on the assumption that Jesus was dead and gone. And so what a shock for Paul to hear these words, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. The you is emphatic in the original. Now, just thinking about those first three words that he heard, I am Jesus, how they would have hit Paul like a steamroller. I mean, can you imagine all that that would turn up inside his heart, deep in his soul, the emotion of pain, guilt, fear, confusion that would just steamroll him. Now, notice that Jesus does not say to Paul, Paul, I'm Jesus, you are persecuting the church. That's not what he says. Rather, he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You're persecuting me, Paul. Back in John 15, 18, Jesus had said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Persecution is ultimately about Christ, not about us. 
Why do people hate Jesus? Very simple. It's because Jesus says that we are sinners, that we cannot save ourselves, and he is the only way to God. As he had said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, in John 16, 2, Jesus also said, Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Now, that was certainly true of Paul, isn't it? Paul thought he was serving God, but he was sincerely wrong. The French philosopher Pascal once wrote, Men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. And that was Paul. Okay, back to our passage. Jesus continues in verse 6. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. So there are several men traveling with Paul from Jerusalem to Damascus, probably four or five. They see the light and hear the voice, but they do not see Jesus. Verse 8, Saul rose from the ground, and although his, his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drink. So Paul is blinded, probably scared to death he'll never see again. Three days, the longest three days of his life, does not eat or drink a thing. I mean, so overwhelming was this encounter. But, but no doubt he's praying, he's, he's thinking, he's, he's trying to process what all this means and what just happened. Now, in Damascus, the scene is going to shift from Paul to Ananias, who will be introduced. Verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said... Here I am, Lord. Now, Ananias thinks he's available to God. Here I am, Lord, but it won't be so simple. Verse 11, And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in, and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So the street called Straight, that street still exists in Damascus today, apparently the oldest continually occupied street in the world. When Ananias hears the name of the man that he is supposed to go visit, that his name is Saul, he gulps because he knows that name, he knows that man, he knows who he is and why he's here. And so he protests, verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of my name to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Now for the Gentiles, that is the non-Jews, Paul would become the main ambassador to take the gospel to them. For the kings, we know he would appear at least to King Agrippa and later before Emperor Nero. As for the Jews, 
Whenever Paul would go into a city, he would first go to the synagogue to speak to the Jews. Then he would go to the Gentiles. So all three. The next words of Jesus about Paul surprise us. Verse 16. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now that sounds harsh, punitive. Why does Jesus say this? Well, Jesus is not being harsh or punitive to Paul. He is simply stating what we see all through Scripture. There is no other way to grow in the spiritual life apart from suffering. No other way to learn faith and hope and and endurance and to grow in grace. And because Paul would play such a key role in the gospel, it was especially important for Paul to go through suffering. One man put it this way. When God wants... When God wants to do an impossible job, he takes an impossible man and crushes him. And that has never been more true of any man than of Paul. When God wants to to do an impossible job, he takes an impossible man and crushes him. Or similarly, A.W. Tozer put it this way, it is doubtful that God can ever use any man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Not because God wants to hurt us, but because God wants to help us. And suffering is the school of faith in the spiritual life. Church, how are you suffering right now? All of us are suffering to some extent, at least because of this pandemic. Maybe you've been infected with the virus, or a loved one is sick with the virus, or you have even lost a loved one. Maybe... It's just the frustration of the lockdown and the social distancing. Maybe you've lost work. Maybe your suffering today is unrelated to the pandemic. But church, do not be surprised that you go through suffering. Do not think that God has abandoned you in your suffering. God is using that suffering to draw you to Christ and to shape your soul. God is at work in your life right now. Didn't we sing that just a a few moments ago? God, you're always at work. God, you never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're at work. God, whatever you're suffering and going through right now, God is at work for good in your life. This morning I was reviewing my notes, and I'd gone a little past this point, and I got a text. And I opened my text early morning. And it was from a fellow pastor here at Woods Edge, John Harrington. Many of you know John. He is one of our executive pastors. He is over all of our missions, ministries, everything we do outside the walls, all of our church planning. John had read a passage in Proverbs about the storms of life. And then this is what he wrote in his text to me. He said, just before I read this passage, I listened to, Is He Worthy? One of those YouTube collaborations. I was moved to tears, sobs, ordinary people in homes, all generations, worshiping that there is only one who is worthy to open the scrolls. Emotion swept over me, and I asked, Lord, why? You know, why why was there such emotion? He continues writing. He said, I think there is more to the tears than a song sung well. I think the heaviness in my heart about this terrible, strange storm of uncertainty has a stronger hold on me than I imagined. 
On the surface, I don't seem worried, just frustrated and annoyed. But deep down, I am afraid of what is happening, angry at the loss of control, wondering in a low grade of anxiety about the devastation of this slow-moving storm that seems to have settled over the world. Storms sweep in suddenly, but we always expect the storm to lift. But everyone is asking, when will, when will this storm be over? And this song hit me this way. The church will not be stopped. Wound her one way and she heals up in another form. Persecute her and she grows stronger, deeper, more virile. People will figure out how to connect and how to worship and how to offer beautiful praise. And when I read John's words, I thought, Jeff, that's going on in your heart. You are confident that God is going to bring good out of things, and, and you're confident that the good things are going to happen, but at a deep level, you are suffering more than you allow yourself to know with all the uncertainty and the missing of your people gathered as the church. God is at work whatever you are suffering this morning. Back to the passage. Ananias goes. He obeys. Verse 17, so Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. Now, let me pause. Is that not tender? Brother Saul. I mean, those words probably were so, Paul, so sweet for Paul to hear. Brother Saul. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, church, if you've been with us the last months in the book of Acts, it is impossible to overstate the emphasis of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. At every turn, we see that believers live by the power of the Spirit, independence upon the power of the Spirit, led by the power of the Spirit. That's the Christian life. Every day, make sure you are surrendered to the Spirit, full of the Spirit, dependent upon the Spirit, led by the Spirit. Fill me, Lord. Fill me, Spirit. Verse 18, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Paul comes to faith in Christ and gets baptized. In the book of Acts, all who come to faith in Christ get baptized. It is the first step of obedience in the Christian life. And if you have not been baptized since you trusted Christ, then let me urge you, get baptized. You can email us at baptism at woodsedge.org and sign up. All righty, church, that's the passage. Marvelous, marvelous passage. Three big takeaways from the class, this classic passage on the conversion of Paul. One, the truth of the gospel. The conversion of, of Paul is strong evidence for the truth of the gospel. What else, let me ask you, what else adequately explains that Paul would go from hating Jesus to loving Jesus on a dime? What else? adequately explains that he goes from being the main persecutor of the church to the main ambassador of the church. There is no other 
adequate explanation except that Jesus, the risen Christ, appeared to him on the Damascus Road. After Damascus, Paul was willing to suffer any hardship. He would gladly die for Christ, and in fact, he would die for Christ, eventually giving his life for Christ, beheaded by Emperor Nero, and he did it because he had seen the risen Christ, the truth of the gospel. Secondly, no one is beyond God's grace, and that includes you. If you ever think that you have sinned too much or you failed too much for God to save you, then remember Paul, how he hated Jesus, hated Christians, tried to murder them. Paul makes this same point in 1 Timothy 1, verse 13. He writes, Though, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example for those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So God saved Paul so that every man and woman thereafter would have, have this example that God saves sinners. And if God can save the worst sinners, he can save you and me. He can. God's grace is always bigger than your sin, always. If you have never trusted in that grace, then I beg you, Right now, wherever you are, lay aside your pride and your religious efforts and flee to the cross of Christ for mercy. Just breathe a prayer. Oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Your words don't matter. It's your heart trusting Jesus. Oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, and he will save you. Truth three, the final truth. We see here that God is the great seeker. God pursues sinners in love. The only reason that Paul came to faith in Christ is because Christ loved him and pursued him in love. By the way, that is the only reason that you were saved or that I was saved. It's not because we were so smart or clever or good, but because God loved us and pursued us. That's the only reason. You cannot, I cannot, with one hand, lift my hand in praise to God, and with the other hand, pat myself on the back saying, I was so smart to figure this out. I cannot do that, nor can you. But I lift both hands to God because all glory goes to God because it's all of grace, all of grace. God pursued you. The best example in the modern world that I have seen comes from C.S. Lewis, that brilliant scholar at Oxford University, literature professor, and an atheist. But God was pursuing him, drawing him, uh, using people and events to, to draw Paul, including, by the way, he used J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote the Lord of the Rings uh, books. Lewis came to faith, not because he was seeking after God, but God was seeking after him. And he later wrote about this. He wrote, amiable agnostics will talk cheerfully about man's search for God. To me, as I then was, they might as well have talked about the mouse's search for the cat. Night after night, 
He says, he sat in his room aware of the approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. Finally, he could stand it no longer and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. And he described himself as the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. But then he concludes, he says, but who, but who can duly adore the love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape. That reminds us of Paul, who was the most reluctant convert in all the land. And every single person who has ever come to faith, including you and me, have come because God, in his grace and his love, is seeking us. He's the great seeker. This morning, right now, this moment, God may well be seeking you, pursuing you. And maybe you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, but the great seeker is after you, after you, drawing you in love and mercy. Today could be the most important day of all your life if you would just read the prayer, Jesus, come and save me. If that's your prayer, if that's your heart, Jesus did just save you. Let us know if you make a decision to trust Christ. You can go to the upper right-hand part of your screen, I think it is. Um, There's a digital connect card there. Indicate the box that I trusted Christ to save me so we can get you some next steps to grow in Christ. Now, for all of us who have already trusted Christ, let me remind you, Jesus did not rescue you so that you can just um, live a self-absorbed life, but so that you can be part of his great mission to rescue others and to bring hope to the world. Christ gave us the most incredible gift imaginable, the gift of forgiveness and life so that we could bless others, so that we could bless our neighbors and reach them for Christ. That is our mission, and that is our privilege. Church, three big takeaways from this passage. First, the truth of the gospel. Secondly, no one is beyond God's grace. Thirdly, God is the great seeker. Please pray with me now. Oh God, thank you. You are so gracious and merciful and kind. Lord, thank you that you seek us and save us by grace. Thank you for a Savior crucified and resurrected. Lord, thank you that you saved me, an 18-year-old young man who didn't have a clue. Thank you. Thank you. Friend, if you're out there and you haven't trusted Christ or you're not sure where you stand right now, breathe a prayer. Jesus, save me. Jesus, save me. He'll do it. He'll do it. Lord God, unleash us to partner with you on the great mission of rescuing others. Help us, we pray. Oh God, bless these, your people. Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.